0: Church, let me invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 19 this morning. Genesis 19, as we uh, continue our study of the life of Abraham, you'll find that on page 13 if you want to follow along in the Pew Bible. Uh, and uh, of course, we encourage you to take that Bible in front of you home if you don't have a copy of God's Word for your own. A couple announcements before we get into uh, uh, the passage, uh, last, uh, many of you know this week that Dave Murray and I were... I uh, spent uh, at least uh, four or five days in Guatemala, and we got back last night. I got to bed around uh, 1 a.m., a little bit before 1 a.m., uh, so if I fall asleep, please someone wake me up. All right. uh, we had a wonderful trip. We're so excited to be able to tell you what God is doing down there as we explore how Hamilton Baptist Church might be able to partner with uh, the many, many needs that are in this uh, very impoverished uh, nation. And so we're we're excited to explore those prayerfully with you, and it was just a great trip. Thank you for your prayers. Uh, I also want to let you know that uh, at 3 o'clock today, I have a funeral 180 miles from here that I need to get to, and so uh, I'm going to finish this sermon, and I'm going to dart out the door, and uh, I'm not going to be able to spend any time with you. I know you'll all be pretty sad about that. Um, I do want, you know, we're dealing with some difficult topics today, so I'm not running from that. I want you to know, it's like, okay, he doesn't want to deal with Genesis 19, so off he goes, but uh, pray pray for um, that service. I uh, would appreciate that, that the gospel would be proclaimed. So here we are in Genesis 19, and for sake of time this morning, we're going to cover 38 verses. It's probably the only time I've never done this. I'm not going to read the passage to start off this morning. We'll read it as we go along, so let's pray together. Father, we love you and we're thankful for this time to be in your word. And uh, we trust that you're going to speak to us through it. And we come now uh, to a very difficult chapter in the Bible, and maybe a one that that many of us would would rather not consider uh, because of uh, the challenge that it presents to us. And yet, you you put it in here, Father. And uh, all Scripture, as you have taught us, is breathed out by you and is useful. And so we know there's great use in this. And so we we lay ourselves down before you and say. Oh, Father, uh, you teach us and that you mold us into Christ's image, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It was on the uh, morning after the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln that 2,000 soldiers galloped out of Washington, D.C. in pursuit of John Wilkes Booth, the assassin. Twenty-five soldiers, those 2,000, tracked him down to a tobacco barn near Port Royal, Virginia, about 60 miles outside the capital. The Secretary of War had given the soldiers strict orders that Booth was to be brought back alive. However, Booth was not in the mood to surrender. He had hidden himself away in this barn, which was well fortified, and he was well armed and ready to fight. The standoff continued for a little while until finally an order was uh, given to burn him out. And so the barn was set ablaze and soon fire spread over the entire structure. As Booth was getting desperate, a soldier at the rear of the barn, looking through the slats, saw him raise his rifle as if he were taking aim. And so the soldier, against the orders which he had been given, raised his revolver and shot uh, Booth in the back of the head, almost identically where Abraham Lincoln was shot by him. And Booth dropped down as the soldiers rushed in and pulled him out, setting his body on the nearby porch, assuming he was dead, until one of the soldiers poured some water on him and he began to move. Uh, The attending soldier leaned down next to Booth's mouth and he heard him whisper, Tell my mother I thought I did what was best. And he then asked that his paralyzed arms be lifted so he could look at his hands, and then uttered his last words, useless, useless. Two hours later, as the sun breached the horizon, John Wilkes Booth was dead. I wonder if many others will come to a similar fate. Not that we'll be shot down in a burning barn, but we'll come to the end of our life and we'll we'll think at the end that we did what is best, but only to realize it was useless. I wonder if the people of Sodom might have had similar thoughts as they came to a terrible end, as we see in Genesis chapter 19. Today, we're, as I've already mentioned, we're considering a, a troubling passage, a, an unpopular passage. It's a story of violence and judgment, degeneration. I, I'm told monthly that if you want to build a church, you need to avoid such passages. In fact, one commentary on Genesis said that the final verses of Genesis 19 are, quote, unpreachable, which sounds like a challenge to me. But you may ask, okay, as we work our way through it, you know, Pastor, wh- wh- why, why not skip this one? Why not just move on to Genesis 20? Well, Genesis 20 is not all that good either, so, you know, up to Genesis 21. You know, most, many churches, um, and maybe even most churches in our land, uh, pursue a philosophy of ministry when it comes to preaching uh, that's called topical preaching. And what they typically do is, is they begin with, with a human problem, let's say, greed or loneliness or, you know, um, stress or whatever it is, and then they go to the Bible to find the answer to that problem. And every once in a while, uh, you'll find us doing that here. I served on a church staff. That's pretty much the steady diet of preaching. And these types of churches often, and maybe you've been in a church like this, will actually pull the congregation. And say, well, what kind, of, what kind of topics do you want to be preached on? Or what do you think about the sermon? Is it too long? Is it too short? Do you want more stories? Or, you know, whatever. And, 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 and so to ask the congregation for the feedback, my fear, I'm sure some good comes from that, but here's the fear that I have, is that in, doing, uh, in approaching preaching in, in that way, we, we communicate to the congregation that our time of worship in general, and the sermon in particular, is like a consumer product that you should have a practice of evaluating. And that you would leave the service, and the question that predominates your mind is, what did I get out of that message? And so you come thinking, I'm here to consume, I want to get something out of this, and so you ask that question, what did I get out? The other type of philosophy of preaching, which is one that God has led me to, is often called expository preaching, where you pick a book of the Bible, and you just preach chapter after chapter, verse after verse. We go to God as if... um, We're saying as Samuel did long ago Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And then we listen to whatever he wants to tell us, right? And we let Scripture dictate what God says. And then the question that we leave with is no longer, What did I get out of the sermon? as if it was some type of product that we were consuming, but rather the question is, Will I obey? Will I submit? Will I change? And so that's why we come to this difficult passage. And my hope is that we come with submissive hearts. I hope we come asking that question, asked long ago. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And today we see that God speaks of the destruction of these valley towns called Sodom and Gomorrah. Some people will say, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those fire and brimstone Christians. So just to be clear, we are. Okay? At least we are today, aren't we? Because we fire and brimstone will be falling out of the sky, and we believe it's true. I believe it's true. I think this happened. Jesus believed it's true, and I'm not ashamed of the Scripture, despite what our culture says. Nevertheless, it's a difficult passage, and to be perfectly honest, God kills an entire town of homosexuals. And that's difficult to deal with. And the danger for us is that as us uh, good religious Christian folk is we, we, we look at those people and we think, okay, we're, we're the good guys, clearly, and they're the bad guys. And we think, all oh, right, God, Lord, go get them. Way to go, God. And the truth is, is, is that you are the bad guy. And I'm the bad guy. And the gospel teaches that you are the problem and that I am the problem, and there is one good guy, and his name is Jesus, and he gives you grace, he gives you mercy, and in turn, rather than saying, go get him, God, we who have received his mercy and grace are delighted to be able to extend that even to our enemies. Even today as we consider uh, the consequences of sin. I really think that's what this whole chapter is about. Uh, Do you remember the context, of course, that Abraham had, as we saw last week, had just interceded with God. After they had lunch together, he he and God talked about Sodom and Gomorrah. He's pleading for God to spare the city. And they finish their discussion on top of that ridge, gazing down at Sodom. God leaves. Abraham returns to the light of his camp as night now falls. At the same time, the two angels who were with God at that meal, who had left earlier, arrive in Sodom for its final dark night. There they discover the presence of sin, the presence of sin. And note verse one: the Lord, uh, excuse me, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. You remember uh, that that Abraham rescued Lot in Genesis chapter fourteen. And, and Lot was captured. Remember where Lot was living then? He was living in Sodom. Now he's been rescued. And where does Lot move to? Well, he moves back to Sodom. Because Lot's a bonehead, okay? And he should have known. That was his time to learn. But he goes right back to Sodom. And he sees these two men enter Sodom. He's sitting there by the gate. And he invites them over to his house rather urgently, as you see in verse 2. And he said, My lords, please turn aside from your, uh, to your servants' house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. In the Old Testament, uh, before God, or or man for that matter, executed judgment, he would only do so on the witness of two individuals. And so we have these two angels here, there to witness, as we saw last time, the character of Sodom. They decide what better way to do that than to sleep right there in the center of the town and check it out. Lot, who lives there, immediately recognizes bad idea, as you see in verse 3. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. You see, uh, Lot knows this town. He says, no, 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 no. You need to come to my house. I insist. He makes them dinner, uh, as you note. Uh, not the wonderful lunch that Abraham had made for them that day. Remember, you got, they, got, they got some veal. They got some fresh curds. Lot gives them unleavened bread, which is Hebrew for Pop-Tarts. Okay, And so they're just kind of, let's get this out of the way. And, uh, and so he's feeding them. But Lot is not the only one who notices that there are visitors in the town, as you see In verse 4, but before they lay down the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we may know them. Just so you understand, that phrase, know them, and this will be very clear in the context, means we want to rape them. And you notice that it's not just a few, it is all the people to the last man, all of them. You say, where are the good guys? There are no good guys. You say, call the police. They are the police, right? All of them. Every man comes out to commit this unthinkable um, gang assault. In fact, he says, young and old, right? Young, boys are there to do this. Certainly boys who have already been assaulted by older men, the ways they have been clearly taught. I mean, could you, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's unthinkable, it's unspeakable. Can you imagine after service if all the men left this building, we walked across the street to a neighbor and banged on the door and made such a demand. It is, it is unimaginably wicked and awful. There is utter hopelessness here. It is complete unrestrained depravity. In fact, it sounds a bit like hell to me. And here, here they are. As one pastor put it, Lot's home was encircled by a vast mob of lusting men of every age, howling for perverted satisfa- satisfaction. It's at this point that Lot intervenes in verse 6. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after them, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Wickedly. Is it wicked? Is this wicked? Is there such a thing as wicked? We as Christians believe that, that sex outside of heterosexual marriage is wicked. That homosexual sin is wicked. That heterosexual sin is wicked. The, the church, of course, for 1900 and about 70 years used to believe that. And now increasingly that is the minority position even amongst Christians and it is, of course, the intolerant position in our culture. And yet, the Bible teaches that sex is a gift from God, and it is to be enjoyed according to God's standards. And like most gifts, it can be perverted. I think it was Kevin DeYoung who, that was helpful when he, when he uh, drew an, an analogy saying sex is kind of like a, a car, it's nice to have. You know, car, right? You could get around with a car, you visit people, you carry stuff. You know, some cars look cool, some cars go fast. Most people will drive a car, but there's rules. It requires training, there's a certain age, there's laws drive on the right side, stay in your lane. The rules are not meant to keep us from using the car, but using the car safely and enjoyable, right? And so, what happens if you disregard the rules? And you say, "Well, I don't feel like driving on the right side of the road. I feel like I'm I'm a left side of the road kind of driver, right? I don't think I'll drive over here, right? That's who I am." Well, what happens? Well, what happens is you end up hurting yourself and potentially others. See, the rules are not meant to restrict. The rules are shown how to use the, God's gift. And one of the rules that God has very clearly gives that that intimacy of this sort is to be done in the context of heterosexual marriage. Now, I, I'm not going to get into the homosexuality that's here. I've done that. I'm preaching through Leviticus. You want to hear um, my uh, teaching on that. Leviticus 18, a sermon I preached. You can find that on, online. It's, it's free. You get what you pay for. Okay, right? But um, it, you say, well, that's the Old Testament. Well, the New Testament, Romans 1, uh, 2 Timothy 1, I believe it, 1 Timothy 1, 1 Corinthians 6, all teach on God's sexual ethic. Now, now, other people, of course, they, they reject that and say, well, well, you've heard this before. I was born that way. This is the way I'm born. And that, and that may be true. I don't know. But that should not carry any moral weight with Christians because we're all born into sin, right? We're all born as sinners. So if someone has an innate desire for something, that is not an argument that that thing is necessarily good or appropriate. The Bible teaches we are all born loving things we should not love. Right? And we all experience that struggle daily, even, even as in our own hearts, in various different ways. And now we, of course, are living in this society that's embracing this type of uh, sexual perversion. It's celebrating it. And as Christians, we have to think, what do we do? What do we do in the middle of this sexual revolution? Well, I, I, may I just help us? Um, let's not freak out too much. There's a lot of freaking out going on. And, and let's just realize that this is not the first time a society has embraced sin. Okay? In fact, we're pretty good at that. This is just the latest iteration. Lust is celebrated. Greed is common. Gluttony is ignored. Pride is encouraged. Teen sexual activity is welcome. I was listening to NPR a number of months ago on a program called the Sex Drought. And the, the, the lead-in was teens are having sex later in life than they used to, and are having fewer sexual partners, okay? And then the question was raised, what are we going to do to solve this problem, right? And and every guest just saw that as a problem, that's where we live. Homosexuality is normalized, right, and and, and all this is happening, but that should be nothing new for us. Christians have always, always, always been the moral minorities, despite what our late president said. And so can we live amongst an increasingly sinful people as Christians? Yes, we can. Hundreds of millions of Christians do it every single day. And so we need to be marked by loving sinners. We need to be marked by caring for people, extending grace, and welcoming them into our lives. And this is what God has called us to do. He's placed us in places like this so that we can live a contrary life to commend the gospel. And so here uh, we find Lot uh, with these very uh, perverted men, if you will, uh, asking for unspeakable um, wickedness. And he goes out and he looks like he's saving the day. It's like, okay, at least there's Lot there. But keep reading because it actually gets worse. So you see in verse 8, Lot says, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Lot says, "Hey, th- these guys are under my roof, they're under my protection." Of course, <laughs> the question I have is, what about your daughters? I just can't, can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. And by the way, uh, just so you know, Lot's a Christian. The second Peter chapter two says, "God rescued righteous Lot. Greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among, he was tormented in his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw. Three times, Second Peter says, Lot is a righteous man. And so if you're tempted to look down upon those sinners out there, well, how's our team doing so far? Right? How's the one Christian in the town acting? Right? Because the only Christian in the town has just offered up his virgin daughters like they're cattle. Right? In fact, I, I would suggest to you, he comes off worse than the Sodomites. He is a terrible believer. He is a terrible father. He is a terrible husband. He's a terrible Christian. Right? He's a righteous man, but he hides it real well, doesn't he? I, I think what we understand in light of Genesis 15, that when Peter says he's a righteous man, he doesn't act righteously, but by faith he has been credited with righteousness as God has given it to him. Right? And so, even the Christian is as wicked as the rest. Everywhere we look, we see sin. We, we, every person in the story seems to be sinful. In fact, all humans are sinful, or to use a theological word, depraved. All of us, we're depraved. And, and knowing that, the, therefore, we're saddened, but we're not surprised when people do wicked, evil things. But we're also made in God's image. And so we are likewise not surprised when humans do wonderful and incredible things. And in fact, I would think, I would suggest to you that Christianity alone actually explains the human condition. If Darwin is right and it's just the strong eating the weak, and all we want to do is pass on our genes, then why do you? How can you explain the the incredible, beautiful acts of charity and sacrifice and giving that we see happening all the time? And if the liberals are right, and that we're all basically good people, well, then what accounts for the atrocities and the daily evil acts that take place in our world? All the theories that man has given to describe the human condition are far too simple to describe human behavior. Only the Bible comes and says we are made in the image of God and therefore are capable of good, and we are in rebellion to him and therefore are capable of great evil. And so we're not surprised... When people do good, we're not surprised when people do evil, and we're not surprised when God acts in judgment, as you see him doing here in point number two, judgment on sin. Verse 9, we read, But they said, stand back. Um, And these, these are the town talking to Lot. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. It seems to me like, like Lot has never spoken up before. He sat at the gate and never said a word, and now he speaks, and they're thinking, who's this guy? Well, you just show up in town, and right? And, and, and you, you, <laughs> Lot, you've gotten drunk with us, and Lot, you, you've, you've been with the prostitutes and all the rest, and now all of a sudden... You're holy? All of a sudden, you're, you're the righteous guy? You see, Lot has lost any moral high ground he had. He sins with his buddies. He sins with his buddies. He sins with his buddies. And then finally he says, hey, by the way, you shouldn't do that. And they all look at him and say, you're a joke. In fact, we're going to treat you worse than the rest, which I don't even know what that is. That sounds terrifying. So we're going to assault you first. And then we're going to assault your guests. And then we're going to assault your family. And it's a good thing, isn't it, that the visitors in his house happen to be angels. That comes in handy every once in a while. As you see in verse 10. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot back into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they themselves, uh, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. So everyone's blinded. I don't know if there's like a blinding light. I trust that would be terrifying. You don't know what's happening. All of a sudden you're standing outside and now you're blind. You think, okay, I need to get out of here, right? I need to run to the doctor. No, they're, they're groping for the door. Their sin is utterly unrestrained and not even blindness will halt them. And they just decide, we, we're, we're gonna unleash the wrath of God upon this place. As you see in verse 12, The man, then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place for we are about to destroy this place because of the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. He says to Lot, get your family, gather everybody up and get out of here. You have to go, right? Because we're about to drop a bomb in this town and so you need to run. God is going to destroy the entire place. And so what does Lot do? Well, verse 14 so Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws, right, where are his sons-in-laws, by the way? They're outside. He went out, who were to marry his daughters up, he said. Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be uh, jesting at, uh, to be jesting, right? <laughs> he goes out and says, listen, God, God, God spoke to me. He's about to destroy this town. And they look at him and say, Lot, <laughs> if God's gonna speak to someone, it ain't you. Right, You're just as bad as the rest of us, so you're joking. You must be joking. In fact, you're a joke. You're the last person God's going to talk to. And so they're not interested in anything Lot has to say, and so he's going to go without them, as you see in verse 15. As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. It's time to go. There's an urgency here. God's judgment is coming. Get out. And you notice Lot's response in verse 16. But he lingered. He lingered. It's like like the fire alarm is going off in the building. And you think, I I should pray about this. No. No, you need to run. You need to get out of the building. Fire is about to fall from heaven. It's not the time to pray. It's time to run. Or at least pray while you run. And, And here's Lot and he's lingering. And I find that extraordinary. And yet, I think so helpful for us to consider. Because are we not like Lot in this? Where Jesus says to us, go and sin no more. He says to us, sin is dangerous. Sin will ruin your life. Sin will destroy your family. It will break apart your relationships. Run. Run from sin. Sin no more. And how many times do we know that to be true and say, okay, tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll stop. Tomorrow I'll run. Or we say, okay, I'll work on it. And we take baby steps, like we're managing sin. And we say, well, you know, I, I used to look at, you know, inappropriate material on a daily basis. Now I'm moved to a weekly basis. Aren't I doing great? No. You're trying to manage a monster. And you need to run. But what, what, he lingers there. It's dangerous. Repent, he says. Run, get out of here. We say, okay, I'll run, but I'll run tomorrow. I want you to see how foolish it is to stay and sit. I had, I had a pastor friend who, um, older than I, and, and years ago, he was at, at work late at night in his, in his office in the church, the only person in his church at all, and a woman came into his office he was surprised to see her she was wearing a coat she stood in his doorway and opened her coat and she had nothing on underneath and so there a naked woman stands in front of him. no one is there and uh, and, and so what did the pastor do well, ma'am why don't you sit down we should we should talk about this right yeah, to he give her counsel no he jumped out the window <laughs> right through the screen just burst it out he ran I'm not going to stay here. I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to entertain anything. I need to get out of here. This is dangerous. And this is dangerous. You need to go lots lingering. So what happens? Verse 16, you read on. He says, So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and brought him out, of the, out and set him outside the city. They seized him. and threw him over the shoulder. They grab him by the ear like a little boy and dragged him through the streets. All right, you need to get out. And once they're outside and the sun's dawning light is now piercing the horizon, they say to him, Flee for your life, verse 17. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. I mean, can you imagine getting that command? Like God is going to destroy your town. You have to go. Don't look back. Don't stop. Go. Get out. Flee for your lives. And amazingly, what Lot does is he wants to negotiate. In verse 18, And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold your servant. Which I find funny because he's really, he's really served them well so far, hasn't he? Your servant has found favor in your sights, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me. Behold, this city is, is near enough to flee and is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And, and, and he says there's this little town over there. It shouldn't be too much trouble. Let me just go from the big town to the little town. It's like saying, okay, I'll leave Vegas. Let me just go to Reno. Right? Right? I won't do the big sins anymore. Just let me do the little ones. And it seems to me, I may be reading too much into it, but they're so frustrated with him at this point. They just say, fine, do whatever. Just get out. As you see in verse 21, he said to, said to him, behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I could do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Zoar means little. Right? It's almost like we can't deal with this guy anymore. Fine, do whatever you need to do. You just need to leave. Go to the little town. And so he flees, and we see that God destroys Sodom. Verse 23 and following. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. As the sun is fully risen, God extends his arm of vengeance and rains down fire and sulfur, incinerating all life. In the Dead Sea Valley today, uh, it is the lowest spot on earth. It's a thousand feet below sea level. It's constantly fed by the Jordan River, but because it's lower than any point on the earth, there's nowhere for that water to run downhill to. And so therefore, it has been over the millennia, or at least the centuries, accumulating minerals and salts. Nothing lives there. There is a mountain of rock salt that is 700 feet tall. In Arabic, it is called the Mountain of Sodom. Archaeologists, or or geologists, excuse me, have explored that area, and they have discovered that there is evidence of volcanic activity from long ago, but there is no evidence of fault lines or volcanoes. The earth seems to be scorched there. Interestingly enough, archaeologists have found that at one time, there was an extensive irrigation system that people lived there. That there was a time when it was lush and fertile, perhaps like the garden of the Lord described in Genesis 13. Now it's a scorched graveyard. And it's almost as if God says, I'm done with that place. Right? No one's ever going to live there again. And God rains down his judgment and he kills everyone in that town. And we think about that and it's awful. And it is awful. But please understand that when God judges like this, he is not doing what what will not happen otherwise. That is, everyone's going to die. You're going to die, I'm going to die. I'll be sitting this afternoon in a funeral for my dear sister Gretchen, who who was 46 years old when she died. Everyone dies. Cancer, car accident, old age, fire. And we just kind of get on with that. It doesn't seem to rock us too much but when everyone seems to die at once even if we don't know them it it, it, God pushes up everybody's day of death to the same day it gets our attention he pulls back his hand of protection there's an earthquake or a volcano or or a terrorist attack or, or something like that and he grabs us our attention he sobers us up and he wants to show us the danger in which we all are that death is coming for us all are you ready are you ready for it? You see, as, as they flee to, to, to Zoar, Lot's wife clearly was not ready, for she stops to look. You see in verse 26, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. It's not just a glance over the shoulder, as perhaps some movies would, hope, uh, would, would lead you to believe, uh, the, the, the destruction, if you read carefully, the destruction of Sodom doesn't come until Lot and his daughters reach Zoar. So it, it, they, it's not like they're just on the outskirts of town. They get all the way to the other town. And so what happens is Lot's wife lingers behind. This is a symptom of her love of, of that sin. Their ways didn't seem to bother her that much. Spurgeon put it well, I think, when he said she looked, she longed, she lingered, and she died. And as she died... Her corpse became encrusted with salt or sulfuric debris, uh, much like probably um, when Mount Vesuvius erupted, encasing the people of Pompeii in that volcanic uh, encasing or ash, and they're still there. Even to this day, you see them as the way they were when they died. And this seems to have happened to uh, Lot's wife, this great tragedy, I think. Because you think about her life, and the angel took her out of certain destruction. He charged her to flee, and and what did she do? She returned in her heart. I mean, (laughs) she was almost out. And I think so many people, like Lot's wife, perish on the way to salvation. Again, Spurgeon said she was almost saved, but not quite. My my reoccurring fear, even as I preach to you every week, is that there are some here who hear the gospel all the time and are so close, so close, but not quite there, not quite in the kingdom, because they linger. Well, the sun is rising, and the camera, if you will, turns to Abraham as he Walks out to the place where he had pleaded for Sodom the night before. See in verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looks down to that valley, and you wonder what he expected to see. Perhaps he's hoping that the cities will still be there. After all, he did plead for them, right? If there's ten righteous people, will you spare or forgive all the wicked? And so he looks down, and where there one, once saw fertile and lush fields that Lot so desired, now he sees this vast incinerator, as you see in verse 28, and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and towards all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Dense smoke rising from the valley, sulfuric fumes filling the air, the cities are gone, vanished overnight. It's interesting to me that we don't see Abraham, you know, saddling up his camels and rushing down into the cities to see what he can do. He had pleaded with God and he just let it, left, left it in God's hands, didn't he? In fact, his question the night before, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? The answer, of course, is yes. And Abraham understands what God did was right, that God's judgment is right. And of course, this little judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah some 4,000 years ago is just a preview of the final judgment that is coming on what the Bible calls the day of the Lord. The, The flood in Genesis 7 and the conquest of Canaan and the book of Joshua, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah are simply foreshadows of the return of Jesus. And Jesus spoke of this coming day, even as our our brother Craig reminded us from Luke 17. And Jesus says, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Now listen to this. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. That is, one moment all of us will be going about our affairs just as we have done for decades and centuries before. Stores will be open. People will be busy about the chores and the responsibilities for that day. And the next moment, destruction and judgment. There will be no warning For the Lord himself said, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Judgment will come over all the world. There will be no chance on that day to run to the hills when Christ returns. And I know that people think about this and they laugh at the idea of a judgment by a holy God. Just like Lot's sons-in-laws laughed at the idea. It was silly to them too. If they had heeded the warning, they would have been saved. And so I tell you, not based upon wishful thinking for myself, but based upon the authority of the Word of God, that the wrath of God is coming. And there is only one refuge. His name is Jesus. He himself said to those who hear, Jesus said this, of the opportunity of rescue, just as you are hearing today, and yet refuse it. He said, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those who refuse my gospel. May I exhort you and beg you to flee to Jesus that you might be rescued from his judgment on sinners. Well, you think, okay, well, that's about as bad as this can get, right? I'm afraid it gets worse. As we consider thirdly, the degeneration of sin. Let me pick up the story in verse 30. Now Lot went up from Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Evidently, Zoar wasn't as nice as he thought. Perhaps he learned of the destruction of Sodom, and uh, he he just wasn't going to risk it. I don't know why He, he moves to the caves in the hills. Sadly, he doesn't return to his uncle Abraham, who I trust would have gladly welcomed him. Maybe it's pride that kept him away. And it's there in that cave in the hill that the unspeakable comes to mind. As you see in verse 31, And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on the earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. I want you to see what, what living in Sodom has done to these girls. What they are suggesting as appalling as it is to us, probably was not that unusual in that town. I think they learned their wicked ways from somewhere. And by the way, when they say all the earth, earth can be translated as region. So I don't think they, they believe that the whole earth, world has been destroyed. They have just been to Zoar and see that town ha, was not destroyed. But their, their conscience is seer. Nothing seems wrong to them. And I read that passage, and I, I, I just, I, in my own heart, and I certainly don't want to be legalistic here, but we need to be aware of what constant exposure to the world does to us. I think it corrupts us. I think it wears you down. And the one thing that seem so clearly to be um, wrong to you now don't seem so wrong. And I hear people say, you know, you know, I watch this or I watch that. I can handle it. It doesn't bother you, bother me. Well maybe it should. And maybe the fact that it doesn't bother you is a sign of a problem. And these women are are are, are just fully been involved into this culture and they have embraced its values. And I think and it's a dad and his daughters in a cave. I got five daughters. I, it's just this is appalling to me. In fact, I mean there's a lot of daughters in this church. You recognize that my my daughter one of my daughters just turned 12 and she had 20 of our closest friends come over and spend the night, all from church. I mean, there's a whole house of 11-year-old, 12-year-old girls and, and having a wonderful time. There's girls all over this place. And many of these girls have daddies. And these daddies should love their daughters and pray with their daughters and protect their daughters. Right? These daddies should just not buy their daughters things. And, and pursue their careers and their money while, while their daughters don't get their attention. One day, dads, listen, one day, a pastor's gonna stand before you as you are arm in arm with your daughters, and he's gonna ask, who gives this woman to be married to this man? Who turns her over? And you're gonna stand before her, or, uh, him, and all the congregation and God himself and say, I do. And on that day, you want to turn your daughter over to another man having done all you could to point her to Jesus, to protect her. And they need to hear from their daddy, I love you, baby. And until your husband comes, you're daddy's girl. And daddy will hug you, and daddy will take you out on dates, and daddy will buy you flowers, and daddy daddy will write you cards, and daddy will encourage you, daddy will be your protector, and daddy will be your provider. Right? Lot, Lot didn't care about any of that. He says, you can have my daughters. And the dirty, perverted man raises dirty, perverted girls because he's too busy advancing his career. And so they go through with it. Verse 33. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with their father, He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger younger rose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down. And when she arose... Maybe Lot's seeking to numb his pain through drink rather than seeking the Lord, and he does the unimaginable. The terrible irony, which should be evident to us all, is that Lot actually carries out his own vile proposal that he made to the men of Sodom. That he himself is the one to lay with his virgin daughters. I mean, it's... It's incredible and awful irony, and, and how bad is it when, when your family, you barely make it out of Sodom alive, you have nothing but the clothes on your back, and evidently a bottle of wine. Right? If your house is on fire and you shout, quick, get the beer, there's a problem with that home. Right? And, and here they are, and they're getting drunk in this cave, uh, dad getting drunk with his daughters, which is despicable just to begin with, and may I tell all of you who enjoy your liberty in Christ as I do, beware of the dangers of alcohol. Because getting drunk doesn't result in a good time, but shame, curse, slavery, Now, as I've shared with you before, I believe the Bible is very clear that alcohol is not always presented in a negative light. It's often presented as a gift from God. Look in Genesis 14, Melchizedek brings out wine to celebrate Abraham's victory over the opposing enemies. Psalm 104 says, wine is given to gladden the heart of man. And yet there are warnings after warnings about the dangers of drunkenness. Proverbs 23 says who has woe, who has sorrow, who has strife, who has wounds without cause, those who tarry long over wine. That's why scripture tells us elders are not to be drunkards, deacons are not to be addicted to wine, older women are not to be slaves to much wine. Proverbs 20 says, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Alcohol, when used in excess, can make the unthinkable seem like a good idea, as was the case in Lot's life. And so we see the last epitaph of Lot, if you will, in verse 36, thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. That's his legacy. You say, "Why? Why is this even in the Bible?" Well, <laughs> do, do you notice that that we, we see we see in Lot's life that that sin sin will take you where you never thought it, you would end up. And and so many people think, "How did I get here? How did I end up here?" I'll tell you how you did, one step at a time. And so many people start off their life and maybe they're married and it's all hope and joy and just looking for the future. And before you know it, life is miserable, relationships are fractured, and everything's just uh, anarchy and and awful. And you think, how did this happen? I'll tell you how sin. Sin happened. It starts as a seed, and if you let it, you grow it. it, it will bear its awful fruit. As James says, the desires, sinful desires, give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. And I think that's clearly seen in this cave here. By the way, this is not the only story of judgment in the book of Genesis. We know of the flood, of course. And I, do you see the parallels here? That judgment comes, and a, uh, through that judgment, a man and his family are saved. Soon after, almost immediately after that salvation takes place, the man who was saved, leading his family, gets drunk and then uncovers himself in the presence of his own children. Both Noah and Lot. Why? We are learning that those who are saved from judgment soon commit the very sins which brought the judgment in the first part. So Sodom, you say, well, Sodom, at least Sodom's destroyed. No, my friends, it's not. It just moved locations. It's now in a, a cave up on the hill. Sodom was alive and well in this family because Noah's not the Savior and Lot certainly not the Savior. And we don't see, if you will, a happily ever after. In fact, you look in verse 37 and we read, the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites this day. The Am- Ammonites would go on to worship a God named Molech, who they would worship by throwing their children into a fire. The Moabites, who we see all throughout Scripture, would, uh, when Israel was wandering, would send their promiscuous women into their camp in order to lure the men into sexual sin, and through sexual sin, into idol worship. In other words, terrible, terrible evil emerged from the, this cave on these awful nights, And yet I tell you, even in the midst of that, God can redeem. Because a Moabite will become the great, 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 great grandmother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Her name, of course, is Ruth. And so you have fornication, you have incest, you have drunkenness, you have complete dysfunction and perversion. And you say, what good can come out of that? Well, with God, Jesus could come out of that. That's how God, how good God is, right? There is room in God's family for Moabites and Lot's and anyone, no matter how vile their sin is, if they turn to Jesus. Therefore, there's hope for you and there's hope for me because if God can bring salvation out of that family, well, my friends, certainly he can save you. As we consider lastly and quickly the rescue of sinners. You notice God saves Lot. We're told why in verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. So we see here, very interestingly, Lot was saved because God loves Abraham. And, I, I, and that's something that I don't have time to explore that. I think that's fascinating um, to consider that verse but my favorite verse in this whole thing, and it's, it's hard to pick out a favorite, isn't it? Because they're all so wonderful. Uh, uh, verse, verse 16. Verse 16. Just return there for a moment. We'll end. But he lingered. Lot lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to and them. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Lot is dragged out because of what? Mercy. God's mercy. Lot deserves judgment. Lot is not saved because he's a good guy. He's saved because God is merciful. Many think we're all good. We're all just going to end up in heaven. There we'll meet Jesus wearing a cardigan. He'll have a flower in his hair. He says, "Glad to meet you." No. The Bible gives us a totally different picture. People are not good. They reject God. They do their own thing. And for some, God grabs us by the hand and he drags us out of judgment because of his mercy. I mean, Lot's lingering. Lot's saying, No, no, I think I'll stay. I, I think I'll face judgment. I like to go to hell, please. And, and God says, No, you're going to heaven right now. Right? And he grabs him by the shirt collar and drags him out of town because of mercy. Right? I mean, that, that's how I got saved. Isn't that how so many of us got saved? I like sin, thank you very much. uh, I'm enjoying my time. Before I became a Christian, I always say, you know what I did? Whatever I wanted to. Just do whatever I wanted to. I like sin, it felt good, it was exciting, right? I think I'll just face the consequences. And God says, no, no. And He grabs me and He rescues me from His wrath despite myself. Because why? Because I'm a good guy? No, my friends, because God is merciful. In fact, throughout the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah is always pictured as, as an example of God's wrath. Sodom is mentioned outside Genesis uh, 27 times in 13 different books. And, and it shows us that, that not just what God does to ancient cities, but as an example of what God will do on those who refuse his mercy. God will judge them. 2 Peter 2 says, By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ash, he made them example of what was going to happen. God is going to judge sinners, and Sodom and Gomorrah is a picture of it. But that's not all it pictures. You know what else it pictures? Whenever you see judgment in the Bible, may you, Christians, see the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what Sodom experienced is simply a minute picture of what Jesus Christ himself experienced for you and for me. It's a picture that, of the judgment which Jesus has received. For the Bible says in Romans 5, 9, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from what? The wrath of God. There is wrath to come. And if you do not repent and trust in Jesus, you will, I tell you by the authority of the word of God, die and go to an eternity to a place called Hell. That's coming. And I tell you today, not because I'm good or you're good or anyone's good, there is hope. And you say, well, man, you are no better than me. Of course, that's the whole point. I'm not. I mean, I went from pervert to pastor. That's good. If I ever write my memoir, that's the title, right? Why, why, how in the world does one get qualified to stand before a group of 300 people and preach God's word? How does that happen? I'll tell you how it happened. Because God is merciful. And he'll be merciful to you. I was living in Sodom. I was a Sodomite. And God grabbed me because he's merciful and says, I'm taking you out of here. I'm claiming you as my own. You see, the moral of the story sodomites are bad right that's clear Lot was bad Lot's wife's bad Lot's daughter's bad you're bad I'm bad right we're all bad and Jesus is good and he gives mercy may you take his hand and run and not look back our father in heaven we are so thankful for the mercy of our Lord Jesus you are way too good to us I pray that your mercy would transform our lives, that we would be humble, that we would be gracious to others, and that we would be bold to warn of the fate of those who refuse the mercy of a holy God. We thank you for mercy. We pray in Christ's name, amen.